Our opening words this morning are from the poet Mary Oliver. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. I invite you now into that haystack of light to join our guest Maureen and Tom in our opening song this morning. Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. My name is Laura Solomon, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. I'm so glad you're here with us this morning, whether you're here in the room or joining us on Facebook. Visitors and guests, we hope that you got a blue name tag so that we can welcome you and answer any questions you might have. We love talking about why this community is so important to us, and we'd like to hear from you what you're looking for. 
We hope you'll join us after the platform service for waffles from the teens this, this morning um, in the lobby in the social hall. Please consider sharing your email with us on the gold sheet found at the welcome table. You can drop that sheet in the collection basket as it passes later in the platform service. I want to remind you to please silence your electronic devices this morning so you can be fully present with us, although we'd love it if you can check in on social media first. And now I'd like to invite Tom Hutton to read our statement of purpose. Tom was a member of the hiring team for our membership coordinator. Um, and we share our statement of purpose so that we can hear our shared values in each other's voices. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each other's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. Tom, can you also light our candle? As Tom lights our candle, I invite you to join me in our candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light. Settle into your seat. Get comfortable, close your eyes or soften your gaze. And begin with three slow, deep breaths. We come to this moment with the weight of our worries and wonder at the world and busyness that comes with living day to day. We carry so much of the world with us, all that we see on the news, all that we know is happening in our community, all that's happening in our personal lives. I invite you to just take a moment to allow these feelings to be. Greet them. Name them. Feel them. Allow them to be. Perhaps you feel them swirling inside you. Perhaps they settle in one particular place in your body. Breathe in, breathe out, and let them go. Breathe in, breathe out, and let them go. As the feelings swirl and come back, breathe in, breathe out, and let them go.
I find myself in times of trouble Mother Mary comes to me Speaking words of wisdom Let it be And in my hour of darkness She is standing right in front of me Speaking words of wisdom Let it be 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 Whisper words of wisdom Let it be And when the brokenhearted people Living in the world agree There will be an answer Let it be For though they may be parted There is still a chance That they will see There will be an answer Let it be Let it be Maureen, thank you so much for that. <clears throat> this, uh, this platform is about compassion fatigue and about how we handle the feeling of overwhelm. And um, I have prepared some thoughts, but alternately, we could just have Maureen um, travel with each one of us through our lives and then sing that in our ear whenever we feel stressed out. So it's like one, a choice, I could do the platform, or Maureen, if you don't mind, just walking around with everybody for the next, I don't know, like a couple of years would be great. It would be expensive. Yes, I, that's right, that's right. One platform's cheaper, that's good. Um, the world um, does indeed, to me at least, and I know to many of you, um, because you tell me about it and you post about it and you write about it, 
the world feels overwhelming. I resist a little bit some of the, you know, everything is so terrible right now and so much worse than it ever has been. And we'll talk a little bit about that over the course of this platform. But, but I do think that there is an experience right now, an experience that many of us are having, perhaps, that the world seems particularly challenging. That we are in, my favorite word, a liminal time. Remember, that's the word that really pretty much just ministers use, but boy, do we use it a lot. It's the time in between things. A time of instability and of change. I've shared before that every institution that I am part of, all of them are a progressive institution of one kind or another, national or local. Every institution I am part of right now is experiencing some amount of destabilization. They are asking who they can be as an institution in the world today, how they can serve their mission or their people. And I think many of us are experiencing that as well, that destabilization institutionally or in our own lives. There is a sense, a felt sense, that things are happening in the world around us, that we are in the midst of turmoil and change and that we need to figure out how to go forward. I do believe that a significant part of that feeling comes from our engagement with media. Media which is now available to us 24-7 in any kind of format we might like. We can read Twitter or scroll through Facebook. We can watch the news on many channels all the time, every hour of the day or night. There was an article um, just recently in the Washington Post um, by uh, the, the reporter was Jelena Kamachinovic. Um, and it was about the experience of anxiety. It was actually about generalized anxiety disorder, which is a diagnosed condition, right? Um, and, um, and about how more and more people are presenting with generalized anxiety disorder or simply are reporting, self-reporting, that they are worried and anxious a lot. The quote that stood out for me from that article was, a 2018 Gallup poll found that 45% of Americans said that they felt worried a lot, more than in any year since 2006. I actually thought the article as a whole kind of left a lot to be desired. One of the takeaways seemed to be most of the things, I think they said like 70% of the things that people worry about don't actually happen, so just don't worry leading me to think, but what about the other 30%? And as one of my friends said, maybe those 70% didn't happen because I worried about it. See, do you think about that? It's important. The article didn't really have a whole lot of um, helpful takeaways, though they did suggest mindfulness, um, which I certainly uh, concur with, second that suggestion. But what particularly disappointed me about this article was that it didn't really look into why anxiety is being reported at higher rates than we've seen before. Why did this Gallup poll come back with 45% of folks identifying um, in America that they felt worried a lot? 
And I can tell you, my colleagues could tell you, the psychologists and the psychiatrists and the social workers and therapists out there could tell you that indeed in the last few years, the reporting, the self-reporting of folks who are experiencing anxiety and worry has increased. The number of people that are seeking out support and sharing their experiences of anxiety has gone up. The world around us is stressing us out. And so here is one of the first pieces I want to make sure to say today. You know, our theme this month is attention, and we're thinking throughout the month about how we pay attention to different things. And so I want to offer today a little bit of a counter theme, which is don't pay such close attention. I, I want to offer you mm, humanist or ethical absolution. You do not need to know the details of everything that is happening in our country and in our world. In fact, I don't think it's good for you. There's a meme I saw at some point that said something like, you know, the... Um, my desire to stay informed is at odds with my desire to stay sane. And I actually think that that may be true. We have available to us so much information, so many details of what's happening all around the world and around our country all the time. And I actually am of the opinion that knowing all the details is unlikely to help us or the rest of the world. Now, you know when I do platforms and I do that thing where I say, here's the important thing, and then I immediately say, here's an opposite important thing. We're going to do that now, too. So the first important thing, right, is that you don't need to know all the things all the time. The second important thing, though, is that we can grow and learn there is deep power when we pay attention to the right things. A West member sent me an article um, from NPR. It was a written article, but I think out of a piece that NPR had done on the radio. Um, the article was written by Asma Khalid. And, um, and it was a beautiful example to me of the power of paying collective attention to something of the positive that can come when we do pay attention. So remember the piece where I told you not to pay such close attention. That's still true. I still think that. And also, here's a reason to pay attention, right? Asma Khalid looked at um, the position of progressive white people on issues of structural racism over time. Beginning around 2012, he wrote, polls show an increasing number of white liberals began adopting more progressive positions on a range of cultural issues. In poll after poll, both um, Goldberg and another, uh, Zach Goldberg and another researcher, Andrew Englehart at Brown University, have independently discovered repeated evidence of a more left-leaning white democratic electorate. And then here was sort of one of the pieces of evidence, right? Um, these days, Khalid wrote, a large majority of white liberals, nearly three in four, say discrimination is the main reason black people can't get ahead. 
for context, in the early 2000s, we're talking fi only 15 to 20 years ago, white liberals were split on that question. About half said blacks couldn't get ahead, um, who couldn't get ahead were mostly responsible for their own condition. So the switch in 15 to 20 years, a significant change of understanding and, um, and beliefs. And then the article goes on to talk about how one of the things that led to that shift within the white um, progressive electorate, right, those that are polling in that way, was exposure to social media posts and to increased news coverage of the experience of people of color and in particular black people in encountering police. So for me, this article was amazing. It was this, this indicator of what happens when we shift our collective attention to something that matters deeply, right? And particularly when those of us like myself that carry privilege in the world are willing to keep my attention, our attention, on something hard. Because that's the, the opposite of paying too much attention, right? Is refusing to look at the difficult things in life. In being so overwhelmed that we cannot concentrate on that which is difficult to see, which, which challenges our worldview or, um, or is um, painful or sad to hear. Somehow what we are called to do is to focus our attention in the right way, to find the thing that offers us an opportunity for learning and growth and change and to cut out the part of our thinking that is overwhelmed by all of the rest of it, the details that don't move us toward action and change. Another thing that I think is important is making sure that what we're paying attention to is real. I was turned on recently to um, a man named Hans Rosling um, uh, and his son, um, I think it's Otto Rosling, who um, founded the Gapminder Foundation. The father has since died, but the son continues the work. The Gapminder Foundation is dedicated to getting accurate information out about a variety of statistics in the world, in particular around poverty, uh, economics, and um, like world health statistics. And I really recommend the TED Talks, which are a lot of fun, as well as being um, uh, elucidating, educating, right? One of the particular ones that stuck out for me was Hans Rosling, um, who's a Swedish researcher. He comes out of Sweden, and uh, as does his son, um, showing this whole infographic where he talks about how people think the world is set up in terms of poverty and economics, and then in terms of family size and longevity. And people had a whole idea, the folks that he surveyed, these were mostly students in Sweden, of um, the countries, the, the first world countries who had small families and long uh, lives available, and then the third world or developing countries that had very large families and uh, a very low life expectancy. And, and across the board, the Swedish students said, yep, that's how the world is. We've learned about that. We understand that. We have this huge difference in, um, in the world in, in family size and in longevity. 
and he plotted what they thought it was, and, and what it indeed was in 1962. And then he goes through the years since 1962 and shows the huge world changes and developments that have actually radically changed the picture of longevity and family size around the world, and particularly in Asia, which saw incredible changes in um, longevity in particular over the years since 1962. And so you end up then with the graphic that shows those statistics as they really are today, which is very different than how the majority of the students that he had, um, that he had surveyed imagined things. For him, the importance of those statistics and showing them and showing how different they are than what we think is to remind us to pay attention not to what we imagine, but to what the data really tells us, what we really see in the world around us. Now at the same time, look, I'm gonna do it again. <laughs> at the same time, that chart that went all the way through 2018 or 2019, showing gains in longevity in Asia that were quite remarkable, also showed the effect of the AIDS crisis in Africa in particular, where longevity actually went down on average during that time. The Gapminder Foundation gives us the opportunity to see things that are better than we may imagine them to be, and also helps us to focus our attention on the work still to be done. Let's go in with a real understanding of the world around us, both better and worse than we might imagine. So there's some choices to make about how and what we pay attention to. A and I, I was thinking particularly about the how. I, I just started a new book I really like by an author named Susan Beaumont who writes for congregations, um, kind of congregational literature. Um, the book is called How to Lead When You Don't Know Where You're Going. Um, and then the subtitle is Leading in a Liminal Season because I told you we cannot, literally cannot say a sentence as ministers without um, saying the word liminal in it. Um, Susan Beaumont is of course a minister, the only reason she used liminal in her subtitle how to lead when you don't know where you're going. She posits that we are indeed in a liminal time in our society, and she thinks in particular a liminal time in congregational life. Now, Beaumont is coming out of the Christian tradition and looking in particular at the huge changes that mainline Christian churches have seen in the decline in attendance over the last 40 um, or 50 years. So there's a particular liminality, there's a particular destabilization within her tradition. But she's looking as well at the world around us, at the destabilization and change that we're experiencing broadly. She talks about the need for leaders in those times to move from advocating Advocating being about uh, knowing a plan, picking the plan, moving forward with the plan, leading everybody in the right direction all the time with clarity, to attending. My ears perked up, of course, theme of the month, theme of the month, there's the neon sign, theme of the month. Attending, Beaumont says, 
invites us to focus on the situation directly in front of us. Attending, she writes, is a capacity for deep seeing and listening. It's an act of being fully present in the moment. It's not simply an act of hearing or remembering what was said and done. Attending is becoming fully awake to all that is happening, to the full potential within and around me. Attending is being fully present, not making up our minds and going forward, charging ahead and anticipating that everybody is with us, not making up our minds based on data that isn't accurate or doesn't show us the full picture, but instead being fully present in this moment, seeing what is right in front of us. Those words made me think of my very favorite story that helps me decide how to do the right thing. I've shared this story here before, so you may remember it. It comes out of um, Leo Tolstoy's work, though it's been retold in other ways as well. And the story talks about a, a person who's trying to decide, how do you know what the right thing is to do? How do you know what the right time is to do it? And how do you know who the most important person are, is? Who is the most important person to you? For me, those three questions are, in many ways, the core ethical questions of our lives. And I think of them especially when I think about that experience of overwhelm, of compassion fatigue that many of us have in our lives right now. So overwhelmed by all that is wrong with the world, all that we cannot save, all that we wish were different, overwhelmed by the data coming at us and the onslaught of media, we find ourselves paralyzed, unable to take any action at all. So Tolstoy has a whole story about a man who seeks guidance from a wise person in the village and um, and the wise person, instead of telling him, because you know wise people never actually tell you, except that I told you not to watch so much news media, and I'm going to tell you again before the platform's over, so beside that one. Instead of just telling him, the wise person invites him to uh, help him in that moment, to do something in that moment. And as the story continues, we learn the answers to these three questions. The most important thing is to help someone. The most important time is now, the situation you find yourself in right in front of you. And the most important person is the person that you see before you. For me, Tolstoy's questions and the answers that he posits help me to filter out all of that noise, all of the things I could be doing, and to focus instead on what is right in front of me, asking for my engagement. It also invites me into deeper relationship to make sure that I get real people in front, real people that I'm connected to, that I can then answer those questions with. 
that we can answer those questions together. What is the next right thing for us to do? How can we help each other right now in this situation? How can we be the most important people for each other? So sometimes people ask for platforms to have takeaways for the week ahead. And some platforms are easy to do that, and some platforms aren't. And, and I decided that, that this was a good one for a takeaway and, um, and for my little soapbox. So I'm going to tell you again not to watch so much news media. Here's the thing. You knowing the details of the impeachment proceedings isn't actually going to change the impeachment proceedings, right? Like, we all know that. Now, I will say, at the Washington Ethical Society, every once in a while there's someone in the room on a Sunday morning who, knowing the details of the impeachment proceedings, actually might change the details of the impeachment proceedings or of any other major national or international issue out there. That, so people are, like, pointing to people right now. Yep, oh, that's that part. Well, okay, so you should know the details. The, please do, right? Sure, or whatever it might be. The rest of us, the rest of us, I would posit, should only know the details of major national and international news to the extent that we find it fun to follow, nurturing for our own selves, or to the extent that it spurs us to action. If there is something we can do for the person in front of us at this time to help someone. Otherwise, knowing all the details and the play-by-play -play becomes what a wise person once called edutainment. Not the wise person from Tolstoy's story. I actually don't remember who called it edutainment. My brains only sorted them as a wise person. So if it was you, just know that I think you're really smart. I loved that phrase, though, edutainment, right? That educating ourselves with no real end in sight. And I would say that sometimes it actually becomes even worse. It's like edu-worry, right? We educate ourselves, and all we do with it is worry a little more every night. So I go back to Tolstoy's questions. And so here is the assignment for all of you. First, do a real audit of your media consumption. It's like a very specific assignment, isn't it? But I really think you should do it. Do a real audit of your media consumption. How much time are you spending watching TV, reading newspaper articles, scrolling through Twitter and Facebook? While you do that audit, see if you can notice how you feel at those times. Which of those engagements nurture you? Which of those engagements only stress you out? Then, cut out one-fifth of the parts that stress you out. One-fifth, right? And, and this is important, substitute in an action you can take. 
There are so many ways to be engaged in the world these days. You can write to Congress people. You can write postcards to voters in other states with, oh, I have friends that have like whole craft projects on these postcards that people must be amazed by the gorgeous art they receive reminding them to go to their polling place. You can show up, of course. There are ways that you can be involved here in this community. We've got folks that will be outside in the lobby from the immigration support team um, here at West. On Tuesday, there's a rally for dreamers about DACA. Um, our clergy intern, Laura Solomon, will be there. Some of our Washington Ethical Society immigration support team folks will be there. You are invited to join them if that's something that you're able to do, to go downtown and show up in solidarity. I'm working with the Washington Interfaith Network right now in support of a public housing project in DC, Langston Terrace. It's over kind of near Trinidad and Capitol Hill. Langston Terrace is um, uh, up for a renovation, which is great, and renovations are disruptive, and so we wanna be able to provide whatever solidarity we can to follow the lead of the tenants there um, and figure out how we can make sure that that project is for the tenants and that everybody gets to come back into their homes when the renovation is done. I went out last Saturday to Langston Terrace along with Shayla, a member of Wes, and our kids, and we knocked on apartment doors and said hi to folks and talked with them about what they cared about to see if we might be able to work together. In those conversations, new people were right in front of me, people I hadn't met before, and in those moments, they became the most important people. Being in conversation and learning how I might be able to be in solidarity to them, that was the right thing to do. And the moment for it was that Saturday morning when I had two hours free and they were home and took a risk and answered the knock at their door. The two of us entered into a new relationship with each other and nobody read a newspaper article about it. But I was changed through those conversations, and you could be too, if you want to be part of that work, of the work of the immigration support team, or of literally anything else. And that's my final piece, I think. My final little bit of wisdom. When we are overwhelmed with the state of the world, with all the things that are wrong, the best thing we can do is pick just one. It's okay, remember I gave you absolution, <laughs> to not know everything about the rest of the things. As long as you pick the one thing and figure out what the next thing you can do about it might be. The next person you can be in relationship with. And I will go so far as to guarantee, we don't guarantee a lot of things in ethical culture, I'm, I'm not gonna lie, but I will go so far as to guarantee that if you are able to do that, if you are able to take that step instead of watching another half-hour segment on CNN or MSNBC, that you will feel better than you would have otherwise. <laughs>
a little less overwhelmed, a little more connected to the real world, a little more sure that you, in solidarity with the person right in front of you, can make a difference, can do the right thing at the right time. William and Ariel Durant are a were a husband and wife team who wrote an 11-volume series, which I will never read, called The Story of Civilization. I'm sure it's excellent, but 11 volumes does seem excessive. And since I just told you, you don't have to know all the things, you also don't have to read this 11-volume series. However, there's a quote from their work that I read years ago and that has always stuck with me. It's a quote that reminds me that when the world overwhelms me, I need to narrow and shift my gaze to look just a little to the right of where I was focusing. Civilization, they write, is a stream with banks. The stream is sometimes filled with blood from people killing, stealing, shouting, and doing things historians usually record. While on the banks, unnoticed, people build homes, make love, raise children, sing songs, write poetry, and even whittle statues. The story of civilization is the story of what happened on the banks. Historians are pessimists because they ignore the banks of the river. Don't ignore the banks because the stream is taking up 24-7 media coverage. Shift your gaze just a little bit and build a home with someone. I went up to the mountain Because you asked me to Sometimes I feel like 